Hi everyone, welcome back to Historical Friction, a podcast about pop culture, the past, how we tell stories, and the way that we remember things through media. My name's Alice Proctor, I'm an art historian and writer, and we haven't been here for a while, so it's really nice to be back. I took a break because I had lots of other things going on, but we are going to be on a pretty regular recording schedule now. Episodes are going to be coming out on Wednesdays, and you'll notice that I have a few regular friends joining me from now on. We'll have a little pool of regular contributors and co-hosts, including my guest for this episode, who you will be hearing a lot more from. And the idea is that we can just sort of spread the load out a little bit and you'll get to know some brilliant, wonderful people. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at History Friction. I'm on Twitter at AA Proctor. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, that makes a huge difference and helps us gradually become slightly more professional. You don't have to do that. The most important thing is telling your friends and listening and just being here. So thank you for joining us after such a long hiatus. And with that, I'm delighted to introduce my guest for this episode. So welcome back to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you back. Uh, last time you were here, we were talking about Desperate Romantics, but this time we're doing something a little bit different. Would you please introduce yourself to people, just remind them who you are and what you do, and then tell us a little bit about the film that we watched. Thank you. Uh, it's delightful to be back. Uh, my name is H Helen Victoria Murray. Uh, I am a PhD researcher at the University of Surrey, where I work on a project investigating uh, the celebrity of Victorian artists using uh, photographic images and textual accounts of them in the studio as a tool for their building of celebrity. Um, I also focus more widely on researching the 19th century cultures and I'm a big pop culture buff. We are gonna be talking about Lizzie uh, from 2018 today. For people who haven't seen this or don't know the story that it's based on, could you give a little plot rundown? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this film uh, tells the tale of the infamous alleged axe murderer, Lizzie Borden, um, and the journey of sort of six months prior to the events of August 4th, 1892, in which uh, she uh, axe murdered her father, Andrew Borden, and her stepmother, Abby Borden. It has a particular focus on her emotional inner life and her lesbian queer relationship with uh, her Irish serving maid, played by Kristen Stewart. So one of the things that I think we're going to get into is the boundaries between the sort of facts of the cases we know them and the way that they're represented in the film. One of the most important things to mention is that the relationship between Bridget and Lizzie is entirely fictionalized like we have no record of them having a relationship we know very very little about their interactions so with that like very much from the beginning as part of the fictionalization of this story the Borden murders are one of the sort of more famous historical crimes I think particularly because there is this element of which they are a little bit unsolved you know Lizzie is accused and tried but she's acquitted at trial of the murders and one of the main things that plays into her acquittal is 
her sort of position within the community and the way that she's seen by the jurors. We're definitely going to talk about the gendered and kind of class aspects of this story and how they play into her relationship between the relationship between her and Bridget, her and the court and her family more generally. But to begin with, let's talk a little bit about her relationship with Bridget and the way that the film presents the two of them as romantically involved. Absolutely. So there's a very interesting power dynamic between the couple, which is this sort of situation of servant and master. And and Bridget seems acutely aware of this power dynamic as the person who is kind of in the disempowered and, and servile state of being. And Lizzie treats her as if they are friends or, or equals from the beginning of their relationship. Um, and Bridget's sort of reacting to this in this sort of intrigued and, and lightly seduced way, uh, despite the mm. fact that, you know, there's very clear power imbalances. And I think the film kind of can't quite get to grips with what the true relationship dynamic between the two is because it's a very manipulative one I think in the framing yeah we get a lot of the sort of classic period drama um scenes we have you know some intimate hair touching we have some intimate dressing we have some uh sexy learning to read scenes like we hit all the (laughs) hit all the classic notes of corset lesbian um drama but at the same time this power dynamic is really not very deeply addressed whilst Bridget and Lizzie have this sort of tension between them and Bridget at one point gets quite angry with her and makes it very clear that she wishes she could leave her job there is also this kind of sexual threat in the form of Andrew Borden Lizzie's father who is shown as um, repeatedly coercing and raping Bridget so she's on the receiving end of these two very coercive very unequal uh, sexual relationships between the with the father and the daughter, but they're presented very, very differently. We don't see Lizzie as wielding the same kind of power as her father. Yeah, um, and I think it's so interesting because like both the lesbian Lizzie Borden narrative and the sexually abusive Andrew Borden narrative have sort of bearing in various theories which people have evinced over the years about what the possible reasons and what the possible tensions running up to the murder actually were. Um, In the accounts that I've read, the theory goes that Andrew Borden was sexually abusive towards Lizzie. So there's a bit of a a Mm. transmutation. and, And something that I thought about in watching it was that they set up this almost sexual rivalry between the father and the daughter to be analogous with the fact that Lizzie wants to be independent and wants to break free, which is a huge sort of uh, theme running through the whole film and and which again seems to be borne out in the historical sources was that she wanted financial independence, she wanted to live independently from the family home, which for an unmarried woman was very unusual and so Mm. in order to make the conflict in the queer retelling viable they have to set up this narrative that Andrew Borden is in some way not just a sexual threat but a love rival to Lizzie and I thought that that was a strangely shoehorned 
action, right? Because they already have an inciting conflict, which is that Lizzie wants to escape from the sort of repressive structures of the family home. The addition of this sexual abuse arc, whilst it adds some stakes to the lesbian relationship, Mm. it seems a little gratuitous to me, I think. I I agree. I mean, the one thing it does give is the motive for Bridget's potential involvement in the murder, that mm-hmm. when we finally see the murder taking place at the end, we're shown Lizzie killing Abby and the suggestion that Bridget's job was to kill Andrew. And she doesn't do that. She panics and Lizzie ends up murdering her father instead. So my understanding of it was that the inclusion of this abuse narrative was to feed into the idea that Bridget must have been more than just an accomplice, that she must have been like a participant in the planning of this murder. But we never see that happen. We're never shown that. We never have any discussion between the two of them about what they're going to do. We never have a sense of the way that it's sort of planned. And to be honest, the implication I got was that Lizzie had orchestrated the whole thing and sort of pressured Bridget into it. But seeing that and kind of exploring that within the film would have expanded on this question of manipulation and power, particularly with this kind of unequal dynamic within their relationship. And not having that, but including this kind of narrative of sexual abuse from Andrew Borden puts Bridget in a very strange position as a character. We never really get to know her very well. Yeah, and there's definitely a sort of uh, a sense that there's a bit of a kind of cack-handed treatment of the sort of Irish immigrant experience. You know, Bridget is denied having her own name. She's referred mm-hmm. to as Maggie for uh, the purposes of ease in the household because they had a previous servant who was named Maggie. She's um, invited into one of the rooms upstairs and she's told that she can have her things there, but only within reason. Mm-hmm. And Lizzie immediately infiltrates the bedroom because she forgot she was in there. So the space that Bridget holds in the house is this sort of very uncomfortable, uneasy, contingent sort of position. Yeah, and we have this representation of her as kind of precarious, like she is insecure in the household, you know, she's constantly at risk um, of losing her job of not getting a reference not getting paid at risk of sexual violence and like we have this sense of her as being really vulnerable but because the film is so heavily from Lizzie's perspective we also don't get much of kind of her own voice and her own experience within that it's interesting the way that the film kind of skirts around the Irish immigrant elements of these story, this story and I'd really like to come back to that but one um, reason I think the character of Bridget sort of suffers in this film is that I really don't think Kristen Stewart's doing a very good job um, <laughs> so I mean you you brought up the, the Irish immigrant voice and what a voice yeah. it is <laughs> oh yes yeah absolutely Kristen Stewart plays Bridget uh, Sullivan with one of truly the worst American actor doing an Irish accent, accents that I've really ever heard for quite some time. It's not good and it's not convincing. And part of me wonders if maybe she did have more dialogue and it's uh, it's been cut because it just doesn't sound good. Um, so in the character of Bridget, we have this kind of silent presence in the house, but 
in Lizzie, we have this kind of very specific sort of coldness, which is a huge part of the mythos surrounding Lizzie Borden. A lot of the media coverage around the trial and immediately before the trial and even afterwards later into her life was about sort of her strangeness and her treatment as a kind of outsider, and particularly about her coldness and the fact that she seems very unemotional through the trial and through the inquiry. A large part of that historically seems to be due to the fact that she was on morphine um, and was receiving very, very high doses of morphine um, for the shock and the trauma of finding her parents' bodies. But the way that she's played by Chloe Savini in the film is very cold and very closed off. So although the film is trying to sort of explore her interior life, she is not very expressive at all. And I found that choice quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I was taking note as I was watching the film of of the fact that Chloe Savini plays cold really well. And then I asked myself, does she play cold really well or is she just an unemotive actress? Mm. Uh, and it kind of yeah. like drifts drifts into a, a little bit of a problem of, of attribution there. Um, the one thing that I did notice uh, about her characterization was that she carries uh, these tremendous lines of tension and, and these sort of taut moments entirely in her jawline. So within keeping everything in control, she's kind of like clenching her jaw uh, as tightly as possible. And as someone with like profound uh, jaw tension issues, <laughs> I found that to be a relatable characteristic. Um, <laughs> yes. But you're you're absolutely right. and And the coldness of... Uh, the Lizzie Borden uh, mythos has become so interwoven into the story and particularly the way that story was told in the press, the idea that a high status woman of quality would react with such coldness and detachment to to seeing something so gruesome um, Mm. really went against her in the public opinion. And I think to an extent that has shaped how we sort of view her and and how we've turned her into a character uh over time and i i do think that um both chloe savini and the sort of like overarching uh thematic structures of the film do kind of like play into that really well there's a really nice uh point actually sort of going back to the relationship with bridget where bridget is reconsidering and evaluating sort of the realities of their relationship in the face that in the face of Lizzie's arrest and trial for murder and she's reading the press coverage back and there's this huge slightly uh, overbearing news headline that she reads that says unfeeling and you can yeah. sort of read in Bridget's facial expressions like the dawning that maybe she's been a pawn in this process yeah Absolutely. I would say one of the things that stood out to me about this film, aside from the slightly heavy-handed newspaper cutting, it is beautifully filmed. And the framing of these scenes is really stunning. A lot of the action takes place sort of out of focus or very tightly cropped. So you don't see people's entire faces. You see a lot of people in reflection or like slightly out of focus. And it is very eerie and it does give this very evocative sense that we have this kind of incompleteness to the narrative. Having said that, 
the only time where you get really clear views of everything is really during the murders. And they're treated quite differently, I found, to the rest of the film. They are presented in a much more um, simply framed way. And there is one detail which made me burst up laughing and that I immediately found very, very strange, which is that um, the film suggests that the way that Lizzie and Bridget were able to not get any blood on their clothes during the commission of the murders um, is because they did them naked. And so <laughs> there is a scene where Abby goes upstairs to get changed to visit a friend immediately before she's murdered. And we see uh, her rummaging through a chest of drawers trying to find something and the camera pans the whole way around the room to Lizzie just standing there naked kind of weirdly by the door. And <laughs> that shot was deeply, deeply funny to me. And then immediately like very dark and very weird. It's interesting that you found it funny because I found that to be unsettling in a very effective way. And and this film is sort of is pitched as a horror, but it doesn't really mm. deliver on the horror elements yeah. to any great extent there's a lot of building of tension and then not much payoff but for yes. me the the sort of the gradual pan across the room and and seeing these interiors which we've become adjusted to over the course of the majority of the film um and then seeing this like golem like naked creature cowering and clutching an <laughs> yes. axe we're not used to seeing a naked woman with an axe and definitely as much as one might argue that this was an excuse to see two sets of tits, yeah. um, I did I did find myself unsettled by it. And 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 yeah. by Fiona Shaw's response to it as well. We should say that Fiona Shaw uh plays Abby Borden and is Oh my god. Chronically underused, but does give a very compelling performance in that role. And she says, Oh god! I would I would watch Fiona Shaw do anything. She is fucking fantastic. And she gets like four lines of dialogue and she's brilliant in it. And she mostly just sits there and seethes. And it's great. And I love her. But yeah, her reaction to seeing Lizzie is to just kind of go, oh God. And that's like, she gets so much emotion out of that one line. Like she gets more emotion out in that one line than anyone else in the film throughout the entire movie. And of the total sort of six lines which she is allocated in this film, uh, she gets she wrings the emotion out of each and every one of them. But it is that that combination of like at first total embarrassment and shock mm. and then fear in the transition of like seeing this naked body mm. bearing down on you with an axe. Yeah. I think it is it is effective. Um, certainly, they're going for the shock value. It is, and I should. I I feel like I need to clarify that. Like, it did make me laugh. I think mostly from a sort of like surprise point of view, um, and it immediately felt very very dark and very sinister. But my first reaction was kind of like, oh, <laughs> she's naked, <laughs> um, and and to sort of laugh at the like slight absurdity of that detail um before immediately like finding it pretty horrifying indeed indeed um, yeah let's talk about the genre of the film it's not really a romance but it has these elements of romance it's not really a horror film like the payoff isn't great but you do get some very gory scenes um it's not really true crime because we focus so little on the crime itself like it's a quite a strange film it is a picture that does not know what it is 
Um, it can't seem to decide whether it is yes. uh, a queer romance in which we are invested in a sort of positive and romantic light or whether it is a tense thriller uh, which is intended to put us on our edge. And and the outcome of that is the sex mm. scenes which are pitched, I think, to be tender actually read as unsettling and the parts which are pitched to be unsettling for my tastes they're a bit quiet they're a bit sort of understated compared to the tensions Mm. uh which are are bubbling below the surface um and so they kind of the center of it doesn't hold i think which in a way works thematically because something which they've clearly done is they've tried to take as much of the disparate and circumstantial kind of elements of the story all the things that don't really add up they've tried to take that and weave it together into a narrative in a way that makes sense and this the the queer love affair is sort of the linchpin that's holding that all together the idea that there's something which has been held back or is missing yeah Yeah, that's true I, I did find it very interesting that they they tie up every thread. So one of the most sort of significant details about the actual murders is that the weapon is never really completely identified. Um, There's a lack of blood found out elsewhere throughout the house. There are questions of sort of how and when murders would have taken place, you know, Um, and the policing around the case, the actual investigation is deeply, deeply flawed. So as soon as the murders are discovered, literally hundreds of people from the town come to the house to see the crime scene. And the Borden sisters and their friend, and I believe the servants, stay in the house overnight for the next several days whilst it's still a crime scene before it's secured at all. And so in the trial and in the investigation, there are all sorts of things that are missing and that don't ever quite add up. And so what the film does is takes every single one of those kind of uncertain details and solves it in a way that leads to Lizzie seeming like some kind of evil genius who's who's planned the perfect crime, Um, which in reality, I have always seen this story as much more one of a sort of an angry murder, you know, uh, a crime of like rage and frustration rather than a sort of perfectly schemed execution, if that makes sense. And this is absolutely the temptation of of the unsolved, long, cold case kind of narrative, I think, is that rather than coming up with the most straightforward answer, which was like a bubbling resentment, which transformed itself into a a rage-filled axe murder, it it was this sort Mm. of you know, unsettling confluence of circumstances which must have in their minds come together uh, to create this this complex murder mystery style narrative. So I think you're absolutely right. It adds complication. The one, say, one thing mm. I would say um, is to its credit is that it yields a very emotive first act because they pile circumstance upon circumstance Mm. you know financial tensions ill health in the family familial resentments sexual abuse 
bullying within you know the family dynamic all of these things are brought together uh in Mm. such a way that creates the impression that this is a house where something is very very wrong yes and that is i think effective the problem is in the second act they then have to interweave all those things and and act as if it was intentional rather than the confluence of circumstance which is by definition like the true crime unsolved situation yeah and then in the third act you're sort of looking looking about yourself and and thinking you know what what is the co- the consequence for this evil genius yeah. yeah absolutely one thing that i found very frustrating about the film is the presence of the threatening notes which are it's suggested in the narrative being written by john morse who's lizzie's uncle as a way of convincing her father to sign over guardianship of Lizzie and her sister Emma to him. And it's to create this kind of atmosphere of paranoia in the household and and of anger and frustration and tension and things like that. And I actually was so disappointed that they didn't go anywhere. They are presented as this sort of like creeping threat right at the beginning. Lizzie identifies the handwriting of Morse. And I honestly thought that there would be more to his character he's presented as really more morse more morse exactly he's presented as really um sort of sleazy and unpleasant and like he's a vile vile character in the film you know he threatens lizzie he tries to assault her um he threatens her again when she's in prison and again tries to hurt her but we have this kind of representation of him doing sort of evil scheming crimes that somehow Andrew Borden doesn't put together as well. I think he kind of is representative of this kind of red herring that is also present in the true crime community that he's sort of always added in as an afterthought. You know, when you watch some documentary or read some book about Lizzie Borden, you sort of see the John Morse theory, Mm. which they immediately go, yeah, but it's not going to be that, is it? But why couldn't because it it's be? It's just not you know? as sexy of a story. Yeah, it's not as sexy of a story as um, you know this r- repressed, rebellious daughter rising up against her parents. Yeah, and they kind of they add him in as like the additional bastard, mm. as a, fo- a a foil to Andrew Borden, who is already made extremely killable in the narrative. Mm. They do the absolute most to make him as killable as possible. Um, All the while insisting that he and Lizzie are somehow emotionally close. Um, So so Morse kind of, he becomes a bit of a redundancy in the narrative, Mm. which is unfortunate because, again, like, he is played as the ultimate bastard Mm. and it is, you know, as a performance, effective, but as a narrative device, it goes nowhere. Yeah, and I I just found that really disappointing. It felt like, you know, sometimes you watch a film and you see where, like, clearly this is a plot that died in draft three, you know? And it's, it's yes. like, oh, this was going to go somewhere, and then you just kind of, it fizzled out, you know? It, it, it just didn't, didn't do it for you in the end. So, you know, we've got half a plot here. And I found that really frustrating because every other thread in this film is so sort of meticulously followed up on except for the notes and Morse's presence within the family and and yeah I found that I found that very frustrating there was something else that I wanted to mention particularly um in terms of how the kind of representation of a female killer 
exists in pop culture. I was talking to my partner about this um, after watching the film. And one of the things that came up in our conversation was the way that female murderers are often presented as sort of terrifyingly cold and unfeeling. And there's this very heavily gendered aspect to that representation. The idea that in order for a woman to be able to commit a murder, she must be somehow less than human, or she must be kind of like completely oversexed and sort of decadent in the opposite extreme. That that female criminals are represented within these kind of particular poles, particularly around murder. And Lizzie's characterization is obviously on the very, very cold end of the spectrum. I find this interesting because it is part of her sort of pop culture mythos even outside of this film but it doesn't make for great cinema sometimes you know (laughs) yes this this quiet understated performance Mm -hmm. with a lot of going to the theater and going to the shops and and walking to church it can be hard to to look within that and see and see the murderer. I think it's interesting that you set up kind of the dichotomy of the coldness and the passion, mm. because I think they, they certainly tried very yeah. hard to give us both. Yeah. Um, and I, I think um, Chloe Savini talked about the, the moment of the axe murder itself as being carnal. Mm. Uh, and I think it's kind of evident in, in that performance that there is some sort of implicit pseudo-sexual release happening yeah um the notion the notion that that this coldness kind of heals from repression or even more problematically than that that heals from from some sort of undiagnosed mental illness Mm. because they do kind of set up this um this curious illness which causes Lizzie to have seizures, which I don't believe was really reflected in in the true narrative at all. Mm. Uh, And it's lightly implied that she uh, might have been in some sort of disassociative state in the early stages um, of the film. Mm. Uh, She sort of drifts in and out and and then seems to come back into present. I don't think the film itself ever gives us a clear picture of, you know, where Lizzie's feelings are in these circumstances. Is she burying feelings or is she not feeling feelings? Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely wanted to talk about this kind of mystery illness that she's represented with. Absolutely, the way that the murder is presented, particularly of Abby, is very, very sexualized. You know, she's naked, she's kneeling over her body, and she's sort of hammering away with this hatchet in a really brutal and visceral way um but their poses and her body language is incredibly sort of intimate and it's filmed in a very weirdly sensual way the juxtaposition between that and when bridget is shown nude and failing to carry out the sort of attack that's clearly been planned on andrew and the fact that during that murder lizzie is fully clothed I found really striking the sort of difference between the like quite sexualized representation of Abby's murder and the much more sort of like practical, ruthless um, representation of Andrew's was was very interesting to me. Yes, and and Bridget's sort of frail body yeah. quailing beneath the pressure of having to kind of perform this symbolic act. Yeah. 
think about it, you know, it would it within the universe of the film, it is a huge ask mm. of Bridget that she has to strip herself naked and present herself to her abuser and murder him. Oh my god, completely. Um, and the fact that, that she kind of quails and, and falls away, the fact that she vomits and is, you know, physically affected by this murder compared with Lizzie who sort of retains this sort of intense level of composure I think was definitely like an intentional contrast to suggest this unsettling coldness Mm, mm. but at other points in the film Lizzie is sort of shown as someone with with strong emotions so I guess it it comes back again to that idea that the either the film or the performance isn't giving us that access to the inner life if indeed an inner life exists yeah absolutely um back to that question of the representation of sort of illness and what it says about uh ideas of disability and mental well-being more generally kind of in the crime genre the way that lizzie is presented as having these sort of seizures or fits um throughout the film the way that she seems often very detached and very kind of disconnected, I found odd, to say the least. Mm. There is, as we were saying, really no kind of historical evidence for that sort of illness. And the choice to include it just doesn't sit well with me. Um, It really feels like a case of the film, the director and the writer kind of creating this sense of otherness and strangeness and kind of weirdness for Lizzie's character and using that as part of her characterization, you know, to create this illness as part of the context that drives her to commit murder. I, I find really up, like really unpleasant. I, it makes me pretty angry to be honest. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and it it also just it feels unearned mm. because it is once again setting up this additional note of conflict in uh, a setup that doesn't need additional notes of conflict. The notes of conflict are already there. They're adequate. The parental tensions, the sort of seething jealousies and resentments. Mm. There's a sort of throwaway line in which Andrew Borden is, is threatening to have Lizzie committed mm. for her for her mental illness, for what's perceived as her strange behaviour. And again, as far as I'm aware, that is not something that was reflected in in the the real historical events whatsoever. No, I don't believe that there was ever a threat to commit her to an institution. However, she was known locally for shoplifting. Um, And it was sort of an open secret that she did these like weird little petty shoplifting kind of petty crimes and she's shown in the film as um faking a break-in at the house and taking um jewelry and stuff to a pawn shop uh mostly to just sort of cause drama it's really unclear why she does that i i read that as being some sort of escape attempt that she was trying to raise money uh Mm. to get herself away from the household in some way but it doesn't really land because the outcomes of it are sort of they all happen off screen you know literally Andrew Borden takes a police chief away by the arm and sort of leads him into another room and sort of makes it all go away um 
And mm. yeah, I, I believe the sort of the the shoplifting and, and accusations in the actual historical accounts, they're set up as being sort of evidence that Lizzie might on some level be sort of pathological and and have that mm. some sort of as the 19th century might have termed it, like some sort of um, pathological leaning towards criminality or degeneracy. Um, yeah. But, you know, her having seizures, her having sort of outbursts, her having um, fugues, none of that is is really corroborated by anything that we've seen all that uh seems to be present is that she was sort of generically treated in that 19th century way that ladies were for for having issues with her nerves which could have meant anything at all really absolutely i i I found that really frustrating as part of the characterization of lizzie you know the fact that she seems to have very little joy she talks about the fact that the theater is the only thing that brings her happiness um right at the beginning but then we never really see her um experiencing much joy except for with her pigeons and the birds that she keeps which I, and i looked into this and there were pigeons kept by the borden family um they are mentioned in the transcripts of the trial uh but the suggestion is that they were more like livestock than pets um and so instead we get this representation of lizzie as sort of strange and disconnected from the world but having this deep affinity with animals which plays into other stereotypes of sort of uh neurodivergency and kind of otherness that coupled with the representation of her physical illness and the way that queerness is treated by the film i found really uncomfortable yes yes it is it is a very sort of othering narrative in a lot of different ways um Mm. and they all sort of do kind of come together and compound each other the whole time with those pigeons i i just found myself asking what is the metaphor what are we supposed to take away from the pigeons because you can tell that at some level the pigeons are supposed to be a a very profound point you know there's almost a a loving romantic scene with the pigeons there's a scene of heartbreak where the pigeons are butchered and you know a sort of emotionally abusive scene where she's made to eat one of her own pigeons and Mm. these are you know at one level emotionally impactful but Mm. it never really pays off it's it's a symbol without an, an attachment in a way yeah yeah absolutely it feels quite heavy-handed that then in the film she's shown as after the murders covering up the blood on the axe by killing one of the pigeons and using the blood and the feathers to cover up the fact that she's just used this axe as a murder weapon i found that weird just sort of from a like crime history point of view like it seems sort of forensically odd that she would choose to do that but also the the symbolism of her then sort of being complicit in her own suffering by killing the pigeon that she's been crying over um was a little heavy-handed a little weird um i don't know and also this this is such a a small thing but it nagged at me so much uh in one of the scenes she is reading love poetry to the pigeons and she is reading Shakespeare's yeah. sonnet 116. She reads it back to front. 
she reads the last lines first and the first lines last. And I don't know if it was some kind of an editing cock up, but it bothers me so deeply because it's so oh, that's wrong. So weird. <laughs> and I can only imagine that that was not intentional because why? Yeah. Why would you do it? <laughs> yeah, very, very strange. Very weird. Um, I think talking about the way that Lizzie is represented and particularly the kind of treatment of illness and health within the film brings us quite nicely onto the questions of class and gender that we've been skirting around a little bit. The context of the Borden murders is that there is this deeply um, anti-Irish settlement in the area at the time and there are a number of uh, details in the case that point to that particular kind of dislike for recent Irish immigrants. Um, apparently, and I haven't been able to confirm this detail, but it's one of the things that comes up in the sort of, why was this case so famous and so unsolved sort of articles that are everywhere online, is that Lizzie uh, refused to accept a more local doctor, but a doctor who was Irish and instead insisted on seeing the American doctor after the murders. And there are details like that that I think are part of the story. The representation of Bridget as very Irish and very sort of othered by the family because of that is interesting, but we never really get into the kind of nuance of the power dynamic between the two women. And that is where we also lose any sense of kind of Lizzie's class as being one of the things that protects her in court. Yeah, and I think like Lizzie, clearly has a mistaken and naive belief that they're on an equal footing. And at one point, Bridget actually says to her, do you think I want to be here? Yeah. As in, you know, of course, of course she doesn't. It is this strange thing that within these undercurrents of um, anti-Irish tension, Lizzie is always swooping in to rescue Bridget from things. Bridget mm. is repeatedly you know, accused when Lizzie stages the robbery, Bridget is the first person they go to, um, the guilty looks and, you know, suspicious glances fall on Bridget following the murders as well. Um, mm. But Lizzie sort of acts almost as this, like, saviour deflecting attention by sort of pulling her away all the time. And it's just sort of the part of the kind of cowed and cowering characterization of Bridget that is not very powerful. She sort of repeatedly falls into Lizzie's arms and, and collapses upon her and, and sort of, she doesn't have a lot of agency, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And I mean, this could have been a very different exploration of the way that, you know, Lizzie, in Lizzie's relationship with Bridget, I would say that Lizzie is much more the sort of seducer. And I don't like that being a kind of dynamic that we're using, but in terms of uh, like Lizzie's the one who makes all the choices. Lizzie's always very much the one who's in charge and sort of leading this uh, kind of romantic seduction. And honestly, coming back to this idea of her being represented as a love rival versus her father, there's something in the way that Bridget is unable to resist her that I think would be much more interesting to explore. Instead, Bridget is presented as being kind of helpless. Whereas in reality, this power dynamic would be much, much more connected to employment. You know, you can't say no 
when you're in a position that someone has so much power over you. And the film wants this to be a romance, obviously, but that means that Bridget is presented in this very personalityless way that I found incredibly annoying. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Andrew Borden is is framed as um, the kind of like the pathetic man, the sexual abuser, uh, someone who mm. is enthralled to his urges is is hypocritical but in a sense Lizzie is is not so different in that way they are you know they are both employers and figures of authority within that household which doesn't give Mm. Bridget any agency whatsoever to choose she's even almost prevented from leaving her position which is the last thing she she actively decides to do she demands to leave the house after Lizzie is arrested and Lizzie's sister says, you've not been given your dismissal, you can't leave. And that mm. that's like her one little mm. moment of sort of like reclaiming agency is that she she does ultimately sort of stand up and leave despite that. Um, but yeah, poor Bridget. <laughs> poor Bridget, honestly. I think this would have been a very different film if we'd sort of seen things through her eyes rather than Lizzie's. And I think that could have been a lot more interesting Um, I understand, obviously, why that was not the choice that was made. You know, Lizzie is the centre of this myth and this story. But Bridget's kind of perspective as a bit of an outsider is, I think, in a lot of ways, a lot more compelling um, and would would put this film in a very different kind of genre if we had this sense of her as... I mean, if anything, like, if we think about this film as following the sort of narrative of a gothic novel you have the girl that arrives in the house and then things start to go wrong and normally the girl that arrives is the sort of beautiful young virginal maiden of high status um who then gets to be our tragic heroine in this case like bridget fulfills the role of the the tragic heroine if we're following the kind of traditional view of a gothic novel yeah and that's so true i'm so glad you pointed that out because when we get our introduction to the household, it is through Bridget's eyes with the tracking shot um, in the early stages of the film, we follow Bridget as she walks through Fall River, Massachusetts, and we experience the things that she's hearing and seeing and sensing, um, the sort of like the cacophony of different voices and then gradually fading out to this very austere and, and disconnected household. Um, so in a lot of ways, you know, I, I wonder if in the original conception of this film, she was intended to have more of a role than she ultimately ended up having. Because I, I do think like having had you point that out, it, it does seem so evident that she is like an alternative set of eyes that we don't get to see through often enough past that point. Yeah. And that she is, she's the witness to all of this. You know, she is the, she is the sort of biggest victim in a number of ways of the, of the film. She's the one who suffers and she is the one who has to witness other people's suffering in a way that Lizzie doesn't really. Um, Lizzie does suffer, but Lizzie is also the agent of other people's suffering, whereas Bridget is almost wholly passive. And I, I find her character very, very interesting and very compelling and... I don't know. I I just kept thinking of other um, things I've read, other stories I'm aware of, where I think this kind of power dynamic is handled in a 
different and sort of more interesting way. Um, we were talking a little bit about the sort of genre that Lizzie falls into. And one of the books that I mentioned as having a sort of parallel is um, Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood, which is one of my absolute favorite books. Like, I just think it's so fantastic. Um, and similar to this, tells the story of a murder sort of through its aftermath. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, they're really two interesting pieces to, to read in dialogue. And I would not be surprised at all if there wasn't to some degree um, influence on, on Atwood's telling of Elias Grace uh, from mm. Bridget Sullivan because the parallels yeah. are very very distinct and, and evident absolutely yeah and I mean one of the other things that stood out to me is the fact that Alias Grace is again based on a true story there was a real murder um, of which a maid was convicted and her sort of presence within the story is very different to Lizzie's you know she's a woman of lower class she's an Irish immigrant to the states or rather to Canada who is part of this kind of crime narrative and her representation in history and in the press is very much as a sort of seducer and she's highly highly sexualized in a way that's very different to Lizzie I think Alias Grace is set in the 1840s and it's under a slightly different kind of context, but she has much more in common, uh, the main character, Grace, has much more in common with um, Bridget than she does with Lizzie. And and yeah, I think seeing the parallels in these stories, I, I find very, very interesting. It's interesting, actually, how often the figure of the servant in these kind of 19th century um, trials of the century kind of is central because the servants are often the star witness and they are mm. perceived as having this intimate knowledge of the household, this intimate knowledge of not just the physical layout of the household and the specifics of the running of the household, but also this sense that they have privileged and proximate access to things. And then that kind of yes. creates a conflict within itself of, um, how do you speak under oath? How do you speak honestly about your experiences whilst also maintaining a very, very delicate dance of propriety, a very, very delicate um, dilemma about how much you can reveal about these employers who could hold your whole future in their hands? Yeah, absolutely. This kind of brings us on to um, a discussion sort of more generally about the sort of historical crime genre. Lizzie Borden is one of the most famous cases that has been so heavily fictionalized and it's been adapted dozens of times. It was made into sort of weird horror films and things like that. Christina Ricci played Lizzie Borden a couple of times, obviously doing a very different characterization to the one that's presented in this film. And so she is one of the sort of most present kind of female murder uh, narratives I think in pop culture I guess you know there are also examples of the sort of fictionalized storytelling that we get through something like In Cold Blood um, I've already mentioned Alias Grace and I would say that books by Hannah Kent um, so Burial Rights mm -hmm. and The Good People are really good examples of uh, fiction that explores historical crime in the case of Burial Rights a true story and particularly the relationship of 
gender and class and status to the way that crime is understood. What is it about the Lizzie Borden story that makes it such a kind of compelling like bit of dark tourism? I don't know, it's, it's funny to me that this is one of the ones that's really stuck around. It's a wonderful confluence of factors, I think. So mm. I, this is a very simplistic metaphor, but when thinking about like true crime in popular culture, I kind of think of it as like akin to the expanded Marvel Cinematic Universe or something like that. People <laughs> love to think about their favourite true crime figure and, and put them in different mm. um, different setups and different circumstances. And Lizzie Borden, in particular, lends herself to that framing really, really well because there's so many loose ends in the real-life story. There's so yeah. many pieces of circumstantial evidence that lead nowhere. There's so many mm. different possibilities. There's so many different configurations of all these different pieces of evidence, which is what this film leads into as well and what that kind of mm. enables you to do is to have this like endless um configuration of different stories that you can tell the downside of that in a sense is that you lose the sense of these people as as real people as real perpetrators yes. and real victims and you know it, it is always worth pointing out you know my personal belief is that lizzie was the killer in real life as in it, mm. as in, in this in this film but she got off so everything that we ever think about her is alleged and that leaves a hell of a lot of scope yeah. for storytelling within it because there's almost an infinite possibility and then you you add into that sort of the mediatization of her figure the kind of construction of herself from the ground up in the press um, and the mm. sensationalism of the published photographs, which we yeah. haven't really touched on at all, in which the film um, treats nicely in, in one example of the crime scene photographs, they do an almost frame for frame perfect reconstruction of the crime scene photographs, which... Yes, I noticed that. I did want to mention that. I thought that was a really impressive detail there, actually. I truly loved it. And then... Only a couple of scenes later, they immediately beef it by creating one of the worst sepia-toned Instagram-style reconstructions of Chloe Savini as Lizzie Borden photographed in the paper, which is so profoundly inaccurate, it made me rage. Um, <laughs> uh, yep. As a photographic historian, <laughs> I won't get into it, but it, it, it upset me deeply. However, returning to the point... Um, the sort of the mediatization of, of that sensationalism and, and how widespread those brutal images were it captured mm. something in the public imagination and continues to capture it. Like Lizzie Borden and those photographs of that crime scene, they were one of the first true crime things that I ever interacted with in one of those terrible mm. Reader's Digest unsolved mystery books that I picked up when I was much too young. And there is something unsettling and captivating about the story I think yeah it's interesting that that was your first exposure to this story I um as some people who listen to the show may know uh was briefly a drama kid and in one of my drama groups we did scenes from one of the stage adaptations of Lizzie Borden 
um, when I was like 13 and I played Lizzie. Um, Congratulations <laughs> on that and... great get. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, no one ever saw it, obviously. And consequently, because of the way that that, that adaptation was framed uh, through the nursery rhyme, I thought she was a lot younger. And in my head, she wasn't this sort of like 30 plus year old spinster. And I can't believe that they constantly refer to her as being really old when she was like 32 when the murders happened. But in my head, she was more like a child or teenager. You know, she was much, much younger in my imagining, which is obviously colored by my interaction with it. But I do think it's funny that one of the things that hasn't really sort of been as present in the pop culture representation of her as the fact that she was considered sort of old and past it. Yeah, absolutely. And and just that notion of living with mother and father and that notion mm. that you could snap and murder mother and father tied into the the wonderful nursery rhyme Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father forty wax, etc. It does kind yeah. of create this this infantilization on the one hand and then at the same time this sort of notion that you know her having dried up lady parts uh Hmm. might have contributed to her sort of losing her mind a little bit yeah yeah absolutely it is a great representation of when you get far enough away in terms of historical distance and far enough away in terms of verifiable data you can make a real person into a referent for almost anything you want. Yes. And I think that's what has happened most profoundly with the character of Lizzie Borden is that she's become a kind of, you know, she's a, she's a shorthand for something. She's one of those names that kind of gets thrown out as an example of like, oh, she definitely did it, but she convinced the jury that she was innocent. And also, oh, that's what happens when women don't get married young enough. You know, she she becomes a cipher for so many things. And there is no sense of her as a real person. I I wonder if one of the things that, I think one of the things that I found most um, absent in the film was the lack of the representation of really the court case and things like that. And I think if there had been some sense of the way that the media played into that trial, that would have been really interesting. And I'm not saying that it needs to be like a Rashomon interpretation of like what really happened kind of thing. But, you know, that is a very effective um, way of exploring the kind of truth and fiction that goes into creating these these stories and these characters and these myths. And because we don't have any image of the trial and very limited image of the media coverage around it, we sort of lose the, the myth making process. And this, and it, it is frustrating because the scrutiny of the press upon Lizzie Borden, all facets of Lizzie Borden, from her body language to her dress to her demeanour to her words, mm. all of those things, all of that scrutiny went into this sort of myth making that we're talking about. It shaped this image of of Lizzie as as cold and detached from the proceedings, which is so central to Chloe Savini's performance. Yeah. For all that I've said, I did I did find this film interesting. I think it was a really beautifully filmed piece. I thought that the way that it was sort of framed and shot was really compelling. Um, I, I would have liked more of a sense of the myth, uh, but one of the sort of taglines around it is, you know, it's the true story and it's all um, very invested in this kind of truth factor which I understand but you know I think the mythology surrounding a character like this is often 
interesting and valuable in its own right. And and yeah, I would have liked to explore that kind of myth making in a little bit more detail. Here's the thing. It's somebody's truth. Yeah. But you could take every facet of the data that we're presented in this particular film and redistribute it in a completely different configuration. Mm. And because it's an unsolved case, mm. it could be, in that sense, equally true. Yeah. So, you know, truth in these circumstances is a little bit, a little bit relative, I would mm. say. Yeah. This actually it reminds me, um, did you ever watch uh, Casting John Bonet? No, I have not seen that, actually. Yeah, I found that really interesting. So it's a documentary um, that I think was made by Netflix, uh, came out a couple of years ago, that takes at its core the idea that they are going to make a documentary about the supposed abduction and murder of Jean Bonnet Ramsey, which is another one of these really famous unsolved cases um, that has a kind of pop culture myth around it. And instead of being a documentary uh, kind of reconstructing what happened, instead it's almost exclusively interviews with the people auditioning mm. for the parts. So they tell the story through the kind of pop culture remembrance of this case. And at the end, they show simultaneously the several different possibilities. You know, there are seven or eight girls playing John Monet, all of them uh, are having their story told in a different way simultaneously. And I found it really, really striking because of the way that it is so like transparently and deeply grappling with the question of truth in an unsolved mm. crime. And that, yeah, that kind of question of uncertainty, of, of impossibility, is what makes stories like this one so compelling. The, the projection of a criminal identity or a victim identity, for that matter, onto the person who is sort of receiving yeah. it and retransmitting it. It sounds like that sort of makes that very literal in the sense that it's projecting onto these, these young yeah. actors' bodies and impressionable minds. It sounds powerful. I think it's rare that you see media that actually kind of is self-conscious in that's in a way that's effective, <laughs> um, that that really talks about its own construction. Um, I think there's plenty of self-conscious media, but it's nice to have an example of a film or a documentary or a book or something like that that is sort of aware of its own limitations, and that is really what uh, I struggled with most about this film is that by tying up every thread, we're left with this sort of false sense of certainty uh, around the case. And, you know, the ambiguity, the, the holes, the failures of the investigation, the kind of loopholes and wriggling and deception and the way that people are constantly changing their stories and things like that are really so much of what makes this case as compelling as it is. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, if if I were to make my Lizzie Borden film, which is a circumstance which is yeah. highly unlikely to happen, I would lean more into the disparate circumstantial pieces of evidence because there is more to be had. There is a suspected poisoning mm. that took place in the family home. There is the yes. fact that... In the court case, they displayed the bashed-in skulls of Abby and Andrew Borden in the courtroom, 
and Lizzie passed out and lost consciousness. There's so many strange, Mm. surreal, unsettling, gothic aspects to this real-life tale that it Mm -hmm. kind of... It does defy arrangement into a sensible narrative. And that, I think, is what is so frustrating about the final outcome of this, is that it gives the impression that it has given... uh, a true and conclusive account of what happened and if I were to tell the story I would give multiple threads and mm-hmm. no resolution because that is much more yeah. true to the process of historiography and it's much more true to the process of sort of you know the true crime world in my opinion yeah absolutely I I thinking more and more I really want this story from the perspective of Bridget or the sort of outsider witness um either done in in a sort of there's a potential for that to end up being quite campy um and gothic but I think the the idea of having this sort of the presence of a witness the presence of someone who is kind of thrown into this household um and left without agency and without the power to sort of change the events that surround them is is really interesting to me and I think that it's often very hard to characterize a murderer as a sympathetic character. You know, if your whole film is kind of from the perspective of the a historical murderer or a fictional murderer, you are constantly trying to walk this line between sympathy and fear. And I think that's a really hard balance to strike. And I don't think that this film kind of quite gets there. Mm, no, I completely agree. There's just ever so slightly too much of that knowing glance that saying ah it's a bit cool isn't it lady murderer yeah naked ladies yeah with axes it's quite cool isn't it is it quite cool (laughs) absolutely and like and that and that's the thing is that this is ultimately trying to be a sexy murder (laughs) um and i don't love that (laughs) they're gay nude and mad as hell and they're not gonna take it anymore oh yes (laughs) The lesbians have got their tits out and hatchets at the ready and uh, people are going to get their skulls bashed in. And it's like, you, I, I don't think you can make that sexy without completely um, detaching us from like the reality of, of the crime. You know, simultaneously we have Andrew Borden being the most murderable man in the, in the world and he is just like eminently killable as a character in this film. And yet we need to feel this kind of horror and fear at what happens. And we're clearly supposed to feel for Bridget while she's watching Lizzie kill her father. And we're clearly supposed to kind of feel some of the horror that's going on there. But the simultaneous attempt to make it kind of like sexy and cool and, you know, I can't believe that it was promoted as Lizzie Borden for the Me Too era. I find that just so deeply repulsive. Um, but it is, but that it is kind troubling. Of, yeah, that that tension doesn't really pay off to me. No, I I completely agree, and I think it it gets back to this sort of idea that the center, the core belief of this film is is not quite established. It doesn't know whether it is trying to make us frightened or trying to make us sort of melancholy and romantic so i think we've covered this film pretty conclusively um is there anything that you'd like to mention anything we might have missed out on um so so something that i would like to add because you touched on it very well previously 
Um, but the sort of cinema cinematographic beauty of the film, mm. all of those beautiful wide shots. I wasn't able to find anything mm. sort of corroborating this in terms of like researching the production of the film, but I felt it to be very influenced by a Danish painter called Wilhelm Hammershoi. Uh, apologies to the nation of Denmark okay. for what is undoubtedly a terrible pronunciation. Um, but <laughs> those paintings uh, sort of mirror the many sort of shots of of doors and windows and entrances and people with their back turned. Mm. There is even a Hamashoi painting um, of a couch backed against a wall, which almost exactly resembles the couch that Andrew Borden is um, murdered on, ultimately. Uh, And I think for me, it was just like a very nice visual illusion, whether it was intentional or not. I think it probably was because sort of the paintings were of a period with the time in which the film is set. Um, and the the paintings have the similar sort of thematic elements of sort of bourgeois claustrophobia and sort of the interior of the mm. home as, as something which is claustrophobic and controlling. And I, I just wanted to encourage anyone listening to the podcast, I think, to seek out those paintings and and look for the parallels if you do go on and watch the film because um, there's a sort of really interesting like visual connection between this claustrophobic home and and these uh, very emotive works of art which I think inspired the cinematography. I almost wished in a way that there was less plot and just more pictures. Yeah, yeah. Same. If Liz- if Lizzie was a a conceptual photo yeah. book, for example, <laughs> maybe that would be a more enjoyable piece of art. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the the interior shots in this film, like the domestic interiors, are absolutely fucking stunning, and it is beautifully, beautifully filmed. Like the framing, the way that you often have this action happening in sort of like crammed into a corner or. Uh, faces sort of cut awkwardly, reflections, sort of fuzziness. Um, It is very beautifully filmed in a very, very compelling way. And I, the film is already fairly low on dialogue, but I feel like the the playing up of the kind of silence and the the sort of stifling uh, atmosphere could have really amped up that tension. I actually possibly controversially thought that the soundtrack and the sound design was incredibly annoying there's a lot of kind of oh we differ on that greatly Ah. we differ on that greatly the the musical soundtrack i could take or leave whatever but i am a great appreciator of foley in historical drama Mm. and i think that like using sound arts to immerse an audience in a different historical landscape is a very important part of, of filmic storytelling. Yeah. Um, I always notice good Foley and I'm always extremely irritated by bad Foley. Interesting. Um, uh, I would classify this as, as good and sort of pleasurable sound design. So mm. what, what was it about it that, that turned you off it? Um, I found the the sort of like buzzing uh cicada noise that they used a lot that sort of classic like horror film like drone um Mm. I found that was quite overused and it sort of started to lose its effectiveness for me and honestly I am a 
I really like very sparse sound design. I like scenes that are almost entirely silent apart from the sort of like the creaks of the house and the kind of noise of moving and that sort of thing. And I think in this case, the sound design, particularly because of the way that it, uh, to me was connected to um, Lizzie's sort of fits and seizures, felt a little bit sort of overdone. It was very much like, you're watching a scary film. And and I, I personally, I think with the really beautiful, very um, still constructed cinematography, would have liked a very, like, very, very stripped back, virtually silent kind of soundtrack. But that's my personal preference. Um, and I can appreciate, like, the well-designed elements of this. It's it's not it's not my favourite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is, there is one specific instance that I can think of that I do agree with you, which is the moment where she is locking herself in her bedroom, which has three adjoining doorways. Yeah. Uh, which was a real feature of the Borden house and, and one of the sort of strange unsettling details about it was that all the rooms connected into each other mm. so there was never really any real privacy for anyone because you were always adjoining someone else's room mm. um, and they used the sound in that moment to create sort of directional sound from all angles giving the impression that she's surrounded on all fronts by people banging on the walls yeah and that i agree was a little bit cack-handed in its sort of immersion yeah they, they immersed too deeply yeah we got the bends on the way back up um <laughs> but in, in other places like i found the immersion to work really well and it's something that interests me like in historical film the idea that there are sounds in the historical landscape that we don't recognise anymore. Yes. Because they don't exist anymore in our current time period um, mm. is is something which I find to be immersive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely take your point on that, for sure. I think the thing that I was struggling with is um, watching it. Uh, I normally watch things with subtitles just because I find it much easier to catch the dialogue and the version of this that I watched did not have subtitles. Um, so I found yes, I was often... I found that frustrating too, yeah. actually, yes. I often found I was kind of... The, the dialogue was very, very quiet, but the sound design was very loud and it was a struggle to... They they felt like they were competing sometimes. Um, but that's that's like my personal, my personal problem. With that said... I wanted, I mean, I've already kind of mentioned a few other stories that I think run in parallel to this one or have similar kind of reference points. And I, my main takeaway from watching this film was just how much I want to reread Alias Grace and kind of immerse myself in that again, because I do think it is truly wonderful. Um, and one of the other things I thought of was Affinity by Sarah Waters, which has a similar kind of element yes. of fantasy Love and mystery um there's a lot of spiritualism in it it has this kind of running question of like what's real and what's imagined in a way that i find very very like impressive and, and incredible and like sarah waters and margaret atwood are both brilliant brilliant writers um and i deeply appreciate both of them as authors um and hannah kent particularly burial rights is mm -hmm. i think a really beautiful example of the fictionalization of a historical crime and one that engages with questions of class and gender and power 
in a much much more sort of subtle and effective way yeah absolutely and there's there's such a world of of these kind of historical retellings Mm. of women's experience of the world of crime there's so much more out there than what we were offered in Lizzie I think so much more subtlety to be found yeah absolutely um so if people are interested I might put up a couple of other of these other recommendations just so people can find the names and honestly if other people want to hear us talk about them I'd be very down to do an episode on any of those books because I think they are really interesting examples um that are very kind of compelling and much much more nuanced and sensitive towards the the realities the carceral systems and the carceral structures in both affinity and alias grace for example like that Mm. alone would make a very fascinating episode yeah absolutely and we do see lizzie in prison um briefly but we never really have a sense of where she is she's entirely on her own in a cell there's no sense of the kind of bigger structure around her really and i think i read somewhere whilst I was doing my prep that there was some sort of complication about imprisoning her that she was placed in um an all-male prison or something like that for the period of her incarceration or some kind of thing like that I'll have to fact check that okay (laughs) but there was a complication about the question of placing her because of her role as like a woman of status and class interesting which I think is quite interesting in terms of how it's it's shown on screen, um, this sort of brief image of this floating white nighty wearing body surrounded by a great flock of, of male guards and attendants ushering her yeah. into the prison. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this episode. It was lovely to have you back and I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of you. Uh, coming up I I certainly hope so Uh, I've had a blast and I'm very excited to share more history more fiction and more friction with you all oh (laughs) yes um where can people find you if they want to follow your work uh you can find me on uh twitter at helen v murray and instagram at helen v murray amazing thank you so so much for joining us and I will see you soon. We will be back next Wednesday. In the meantime, you can find the show on Twitter at History Friction. You can find me on Twitter at AA Proctor, and you can support us on Patreon if you would like to. Otherwise, tell your friends, tell your random family members, get other people to listen to the show if you would like, and if you can leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts, that also helps us enormously. With that, I will see you next week. Bye.